Thank you, Gregory. Thank you to the leadership. Thank you, Matt, for the beautiful sharing and video. What a joy to be with you on a day of worship, especially in many ways for such a weighty topic. As we heard in Matt's video, as Gregory shared, I thank him for his testimony, that this is a weighty topic, the issue of abortion. And yet for so many in our culture, it doesn't appear to be a weighty topic. I think often so much of the outreach that we do at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reformers with high school students and university students, those who are shaping their worldview on life and its value. And I think often of an interaction I had at, at one particular high school in Calgary, Ernest Manning High School, I talked to a grade 11 student, a young woman who told me that she had had three abortions already. And when I expressed my extreme grief, and oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, how are you doing? She looked at me with confusion. And she just asked, is that weird? A 16-year-old girl who had had three abortions, who didn't even know that that was something to be pained about, to be concerned about. And that's something that we as Christians need to grapple with. Because not only is this an issue that, as Matt's video mentioned, we must grapple with outside of the church, but it's something often that we grapple with inside of the church. As Gregory's testimony attests to, and as my own experience, I know many people, friends, family members, members of my church who have chosen abortion, abortion themselves, or friends or family members of theirs, their loved ones who have chosen abortion themselves. This is a weighty topic that we as Christians must not only consider for our own lives, but also to be that beacon of light for the community around us, to be those who set the temperature of our culture, that go out into our workplaces, our schools, our families, and share the message of life. That is what our ministry at CCBR is all about, engaging the public. And that's what I hope to share today. Our vision is to transform Canadian culture to return it to its original state. Many people don't even remember. Obviously, none of us were alive, but 150 years ago, when, when Canada was established through confederation as a nation, we were one of the most pro-life nations in the world, recognizing that abortion, in the words of John A. Macdonald, abortion sucks the very lifeblood of a nation. How have we gone from that to where we are now, where 16-year-old girls can have three abortions without even thinking about it? In some ways, that's a topic for another day, because today I want to focus on where we go from here, acknowledging that that's where our culture is at. And maybe that's even where we are at as individuals. How do we understand this process, and how do we achieve this goal of a culture in which we recognize the beautiful, incredible value of human life from the moment of fertilization to its natural death? And how do we achieve that? Well, I, I want to start by talking a little bit about what are our options when we consider whether or not abortion is ever an appropriate solution to even the most challenging of circumstances. I, I think through this and I often give a similar uh, presentation at times even in secular high schools to show the case for life from both a scientific and, and secular philosophical worldview, but even deeper from a biblical perspective. And so when we consider our first option, what are our options around abortion? Well, either the preborn child is not actually human. And if the preborn is not human, then they don't get human rights, and they're not made in God's image and likeness, and they're not valuable. And therefore, abortion is an appropriate solution 
to a challenging pregnancy. And I would argue in many ways that if abortion does not kill an innocent human, then no justification for abortion is ever necessary. As option two, if a preborn child is a living member of the human family, then they get human rights and they get the, the beautiful and inherent protection that each and every one of us in, um, have, the right to life. And therefore, they're human, they get human rights. Abortion is not an appropriate solution. Number three, we have the option that in theory, maybe they are technically human. However, they're not human enough. They're not human like you and I. They're not valuable like you and I. Therefore, abortion is appropriate. And finally, we have the option. I throw it up here just for the sake of, of having it as the option. In theory, there could be a world in which we recognize they are not living members of the human family, but rather they're potential humans. And because of that potentiality, they get human rights and abortion is not appropriate. Does that make sense as our four options for how we could understand the abortion issue? And if we look at that, we see that there are two options, options one and option three, which justify abortion. And options two and options four are those of the pro-life persuasion, that abortion is not an appropriate solution to a challenging pregnancy. And I'll, I'll go ahead and take the first step and acknowledge that number four is ridiculous. We're not going to give the right to life to someone, particularly the human right to life and the beautiful dignity that is afforded to human beings, to someone or something that is not human. And so that's not a reasonable argument. So really, there's only three options. And only one of them supports the pro-life worldview. So as pro-lifers, how do we draw people to the pro-life worldview? How do we understand the pro-life worldview? Well, so often as Christians, we want to start with the personhood. We want to start by talking about the beautiful value. We want to talk about how we are image bearers, that we are made in God's image and likeness, that we are humans and we are valued so preciously in the eyes of God that he came while we were yet sinners because he loved us. We want to start by talking about the immense and beautiful value of human life. And yet, as anyone who may have tried to employ that strategy may have found, that particularly when talking to our secular neighbors, those who have not been informed by the Christian faith, if they don't know that there's a human being there in the first place, then how could they understand the value given to that human being? So often what we need to do to understand the pro-life worldview, to build the case for life, is indeed actually to build a case for the humanity, the presence of human life, before speaking to the value of human life. And often, because this is so intimately written upon our hearts, often when we share the message of the presence of human life, many people ultimately accept and embrace the pro-life worldview because they intuitively know that if it is ever demonstrated that this is a human being, we know that human beings have value. And yet, sometimes we do need to go through that personhood route, and we have a beautiful opportunity to do so. And yet, over the last 10 years, I have worked full-time in the pro-life movement talking to complete strangers about abortion. It's one of those stranger jobs I'm sure that many people here might have or have heard of, working full-time to talk to people about abortion. In the last 10 years, I've talked to over 10,000 random strangers on doorsteps, on campuses, at high schools, and busy downtown intersections about the topic of abortion. And very few of those conversations start by talking about the biological reality of human life. So often, as was shared in Gregory's testimony, there's a consideration for the mother. 
What is the mother going through, the person that we're looking eye to eye with right here and right now? The challenges, the suffering that she is enduring, how do we address that? And so often we find that while these might be the three purely academic or purely logical positions around abortion, so often the abortion worldview of our friends, our families, maybe even ourselves, is informed by something even before that. An appreciation that the mother's well-being, the suffering of the mother is paramount and supersedes any conversation about the humanity of preborn children or their worthiness of the right to life. And that too, if we consider only the suffering of the mother, then that often leads us to an acceptance of the pro-abortion worldview. And so how do we respond to that? How do we connect and identify with this reality? And how do we navigate towards the case for life, the beautiful value that God has given to each and every one of our lives, not on our own merit, not because of what we offer to God or offer to each other, but because we are His creation? Well, we start by addressing that justification. We start by meeting people where they're at. We start with empathy. And how we do that, how we address these justifications is often by avoiding one of two mistakes that we as Christians make so often, and yet they're so understandable. I don't know how many people here might be a fan of somebody like Ben Shapiro. I, I attended um, the Ben Shapiro presentation in Calgary on Thursday. At times I love me some Ben Shapiro. Facts don't care about your feelings. We need to share the truth. As Christians, we need to share the truth. And yet, while we might need to do that, we need to do more than just win arguments. We must win people if we're going to understand the case for life. And so this isn't about battering other people's arguments. It's not about battering your arguments or your friends' arguments or your family's arguments, but rather meeting them where they're at. But on the, on the same token, we're not going to go to the other side of the coin. And we don't understand the case for life by, I value life, therefore I will do whatever it takes to value that other child's life. So often we as Christians, we rush in when we hear of challenging pregnancies. And the first and only thing we do is offer solutions. I know that I have been guilty of that. I know that I have spoken with people who have said, I, I'm considering abortion because I'm struggling to provide for my, my family already. How am I to provide for a growing family? I, I can barely put food on the plate, and I want to answer immediately with a solution. Well, what do you need? How do I fix your problems? How do I resolve the situation that you're encountering? And we need to do that, but not yet. Because what if what they need is something that I can't offer? What if they, have more, what if they need more money than what I have? What if they need the kind of family support that I can't offer because of my commitments to my, my wife and children already? What, what if they need um, a stable home and I can't offer that? We cannot fix all of the problems. And we must bear in mind that it is impossible to make pregnancy easier than how easy abortion is perceived to be by so many in our culture. That while, yes, we must invest into pregnancy care centers, we must invest into opportunities to provide care and support for mothers and fathers encountering challenging circumstances, we need to approach the issue at hand so that we change hearts and minds for the pro-life worldview, building the case for life. How do we do that? We do that with three tools, building common ground, making analogies, and asking questions to help them appreciate the foundation of the pro-life worldview in terms that might resonate with them. Because so often when we're confronted with a justification like that which I alluded to, 
that abortion should be allowed when a mother is struggling to provide for her, for her other children, or maybe even for herself when she's struggling with such, such severe poverty that she doesn't know how she can care for that child. We build the beginnings of the pro-life worldview by meeting her where she's at. I agree with you. I build coming on. I agree with you that poverty is a very real situation for all too many people living in Canada. Poverty is a real problem that demands a solution. But rather than providing that solution prematurely, I'm going to make an analogy to demonstrate the foundation, to address that first justification. And I'm going to ask, imagine that there is a mother of a born child who's struggling to provide for her born child and herself. Imagine there's a mother who's struggling to provide for the needs of her large family. Would we ever suggest that she kills one of her born children to better provide for those children. We acknowledge that suffering exists, but we must meet them and help them appreciate the fact that we don't respond to suffering by killing innocent children. And that we can never justify killing an innocent child, particularly one so weak and so vulnerable as a preborn child. We can never kill children to solve problems. And so we can pivot back to that humanity by asking, if we're not going to kill a born child to address that situation, that suffering, why would we kill a preborn child? What is the difference? And we go through this progression not only for the case of poverty, but for so many others as well, using language that will resonate not only with ourselves, but also with those around us, regardless of their faith background and where they're at on their journey of faith, that we can identify this on every single topic, whether it's a young mother Young mother who's just in, in the midst of college, she doesn't have a stable family, she hasn't established herself in a career, she shouldn't be forced to carry through with pregnancy. I agree that that's an incredibly difficult situation. And yet imagine there's a mother of a born child who's told that maybe, maybe they were downsizing at her company and unless she upgraded her skill set to fill a different role, she would not be retained on by that company. Imagine... Schooling was an impossibility with the children that she was committed to caring for. Would we ever suggest that she kills her born child so that she can pursue that education or pursue that career advancement? Well, certainly not. And this, this goes around the circle time and again. These problems exist. And yet if we don't kill born children to solve these problems, why preborn children? Something that resonates with individuals regardless of where they're coming from all the way around, whether it's motivated by compassion towards the parents or even compassion towards the children. So often I hear while I'm doing outreach, well, I want to save my child from the suffering of foster care. So many children enter into the foster care system and endure untold and unfathomable abuse. And while I might want to refute that because I know a, a tremendous number of incredible foster care families. I know people who have fostered children who have poured their lives into caring for those children. I don't want to refute them because I don't want to get into a you have one story and I have another because we've all heard tragic stories of those who have been abused or fallen through the cracks of our system. I agree that the problem exists. Would we ever solve that problem involving a born child? by killing a born child, and if not, why a preborn child? Let's get to the heart of the issue. Let's get to the humanity, even in cases as severe and as heinous as sexual assault. We agree that this is one of the most heinous 
situations in our entire world? Do we need to do more to prevent these atrocities from happening? We need to do more to punish the guilty perpetrators. We need to do more to help and support the innocent victims, regardless of whether they become pregnant or not. And yet imagine that a mother in a loving relationship with a born child, they have a beautiful relationship, and yet tragically her husband loses his job, becomes an alcoholic, and begins abusing her and her child. A story tragically that I'm sure many of us are all too familiar with. In face of this trauma, obviously the first thing we do is to get the mother and her child out of that relationship. And yet, would we ever say to the mother who's now constantly faced by a child, who doesn't remind her of a loving relationship, who doesn't remind her of a beautiful marriage, but rather a traumatic experience, would we ever suggest that she kills her born child to cope with the constant reminder of that trauma? Well, no. And if we're not going to kill a born child, why a pre-born child? This even resonates when talking about the life of a mother. Imagine a mother has been told by her doctor that unless she has medical intervention while pregnant, she will die. I know people who have been in this situation. I can only imagine how terrifying that would be. And yet we can process this in a very similar way, often with one added clarification. I agree that this would be one of the most overwhelming things that could ever be shared with me or a loved one. And yet I want to clarify, what do I mean by abortion? By abortion, I mean the direct and intentional killing of a preborn child. That there are medical alternatives which do not directly or intentionally bring about the death of a child. I, I consider, um, and, and as a medical professional, um, Gregory might be able to corroborate on this, that I consider a mother who is diagnosed with late-term cancer late-term cancer, and is pregnant. And the doctors tell her, unless you receive chemotherapy and radiation, there's no hope of your recovery. I believe that she should be allowed to proceed with chemotherapy and radiation, even though it may have a detrimental or even tragically a, a fatal impact on that child, because we're not trying to kill that child. We are doing everything we can to save that mother's life, and if tragically we don't have the medical technology to save both, provided we aren't directly and intentionally killing that child. I believe that's morally appropriate. And that brings us to an understanding that we can always address that first coverage, that point zero, that precursor to the abortion conversation by saying, yes, suffering exists. Yes, I can validate and appreciate and love that mother. And yet loving one person does not allow me to end the life of another. And I can demonstrate that through the principle of whether we can ever solve a problem by killing a born child. And so that brings that first one off of the table by addressing that justification, by acknowledging the suffering, by demonstrating that we don't respond by killing that pre-born child. And so we have three remaining. And I'm sure many of you look at that equation and say, okay, you can address the justification. And sure, the odd person might step towards the pro-life worldview entirely. And yet, for so many, we have to build the case for life even further. We have to demonstrate the humanity because we must respond to the mother. And the reason why we don't kill a born child but we can kill a preborn child is because they're not human. And I want to share a few ways that we can build the case for life for ourselves and for the people around us in very, very accessible ways. I, I chuckle often. I know that Gregory has a back, uh, obviously, as a medical doctor. I obviously didn't get anywhere near that far in medicine. I have a deg degree in genetics. 
which is super nerdy, and I loved it. I loved it. And I had a special focus in cellular development in the early beginnings of human life. And I loved it. And when people hear that, sometimes they say, that's fantastic. You get to work within your field. You get to share your expertise to the people and convince them that human life begins at fertilization. To which I often respond, no. I don't use my degree at all. I, I don't use my degree in cellular development. I don't use my degree in genetics. I use grade nine science. I gave two talks during our summer internship on stem cell research and microgenetics to justify the $50,000 I dropped in my biology degree. That's the only use my biology degree gives me in the conversation of life. Because I believe that each and every one of us, regardless of our comfort around building the case for life in a scientific lens, can do this. Why? Because we have four really cool questions that you can ask that build this case for life. And they start from a secular perspective and open the door for a deeper, more profound, faithful, Christian perspective. What I mean by that is that we can start by asking the question, do you believe all humans should get human rights? Human rights are something that we as Christians, we recognize the only reason why we have human rights is because we have a good, good God who values us. And yet, thankfully, the vast majority of people, even outside of the Christian faith, will acknowledge that all humans should get human rights. So we ask a really cool second question. If something is growing, isn't it alive? I ask this to people constantly, and sometimes I get creative answers. I was at a talk recently, and somebody put up their hand and said, what about icicles? Icicles are growing, but aren't they, are they alive? How does an icicle grow? An icicle grows by adding more stuff onto the outside of it, an external force building and constructing it. If something is growing, if something has an internal force drawing material from around it into it, then it must be alive. Okay, so even from one cell to two cells to four cells, we have a living something. And if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? We know that every time living humans have offspring, their offspring are human. I don't care what your perspective or what your neighbor's perspective on evolution is, nobody believes that evolution happens in one generation. Nobody, when they find out that they're pregnant, believes, oh my goodness, I might deliver a different species. I might deliver a monkey or a cat or a dog or anything like that. I don't care what your worldview is on that. And so if we know that we have a living organism from fertilization, and if we know that that living organism has human parents, we know that that is a living member of the human family. And considering question one, we can acknowledge that that makes abortion a human rights violation. Sometimes it's tricky to remember these questions. We have booklets out um, at our table outside that, that have these four questions that you can memorize. They're fantastic. And yet, if you don't remember them, I'm sure many people have one of these in their pockets. A phone with access to the internet. We do a lot of ministry at high school, as high schools, as I mentioned. I remember I was at a high school in Calgary, and a student, a grade 12 student, high school kids are great. Um, I, I know that we don't have a ton of high school students here. High school students are great. I love talking to them because, dare I say, they don't know everything. And yet so often they think that they do. And so they are often our most willing participants in conversation. And so I'm talking to this young student and he says to me, you can't possibly think that you can ever convince me that human life begins at fertilization. I had walked through these four questions and I said, two of the most foolish questions I've ever asked. One, do you have a phone? High school student obviously had a phone. And so I asked him, do you have data? Do you have access to the internet? 
Google, when does human life begin? Google is certainly not a friend of the pro-life movement. Google is certainly not a friend of the Christian faith. Google is hostile in many ways. And yet if you Google, when does human life begin? Google cannot hide the fact that human life begins at fertilization. Every credible biological resource, Christian and otherwise, will acknowledge human life begins at fertilization. And so you can build the case for life using those four questions because they invite people to engage with the topic. Or you can share this. And this ties beautifully and perfectly with what we know through Scripture. We know through Scripture that we are beautifully and wonderfully made. We know that we have been woven together in our mother's womb. And we know even further through the beautiful sharing in the Gospel of Luke that Christ's public ministry began before he was even born in his mother's visit to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's exclamation that my child leapt within my womb at the presence of my Lord. I think this is one of the most beautiful and most convicting passages of Scripture with regards to human life, not only because it demonstrates the presence of Christ's life, but demonstrating so implicitly how Christ values human life, how God values our human life so profoundly that he entered into the entire human experience. If preborn life was not valuable, Christ would not have entered into it. There's nothing holding Christ from appearing as a born child if only born children have value. There's nothing holding Christ from entering the world as a full-grown adult if only full-grown adults had value. But rather, Christ demonstrates his value of human life and the entire stages of human life by entering into human life at its weakest and smallest stages. And by building this into our conversation, we can build the case for life in recognizing that secular biology is in agreement in every way with Scripture, acknowledging that human life is present from the moment of fertilization because Mary went in haste to visit her sister Elizabeth. Christ was only a few weeks old, most likely, in this time of engagement with John and his mother Elizabeth. And so, for a lot of people, that helps them realize that preborn children are indeed human, which rule out that second option. It rules out the option that somehow preborn children are not human. So we build that. We build that case for life for ourselves. We can know with confidence that human life begins at fertilization, that we have a living member of the human family present from its earliest beginnings, from the moment of fertilization. And so we have a human present. So we only have two options left. We have humans. Are all humans valuable? Well, as I mentioned, we, we have Scripture to back that up. And I want to dive even earlier into that. How do we demonstrate the personhood if they were to say to us, well, sure, they're human, but they're not valuable. You have to be more than just a living member of the human species to get value. There's something special about humans that they just don't have at that point. That's where we get into personhood. And while absolutely we must get into the conversation of the biblical truths behind the value of human life, so often we can start by drawing on what people already know. What are the differences between preborn children and born children? So often we get a lot of different differences expressed to us. Well, they're not aware 
What is it to be made in God's image and likeness? What, is, what are these attributes of God that are so important? You have to be aware of your surroundings. You have to not be dependent on somebody else. You have to be a particular size or the ability to do different things. There are lots of differences that exist between born and preborn children. Please don't debate whether or not they exist. Please don't try to convince somebody that a one-cell human zygote has a fully rational brain. They don't. Please don't debate whether or not an eight-week human embryo could survive on their own without the support of their mother. They can't. And yet what makes us valuable, what makes us valuable is not our abilities because we don't earn our own value. Not in the secular sense and not in the faithful sense. We can ask the question, why do these differences exist? And they exist because of how old we are. Every single difference that exists between born and preborn children is a function of our age. And so what people are saying to us is not that they believe all humans get human rights, but rather that only some humans get human rights. That you have to be human plus a particular attribute. So as we build that case for life, we have to address this and ask the question, what is that X factor? Why does that X factor exist? If that X factor is our ability, our maturity, our independence, whatever it may be, why does that exist? It's because of our age. And we can simply encourage people to consider, why is age-based discrimination, saying that somebody is not valuable because of how young they are, how is age-based discrimination any better than any other form of discrimination? Thankfully, throughout history, we have witnessed injustices, particularly as Christians, as we have gone out to the world baptizing them, as we've engaged with pagan cultures, as we, as we have engaged with all sorts of different cultures, we have recognized injustice, we have recognized discrimination, and we have come to end it because we are not valuable because of what we do or what we can't do. We aren't valuable because of any of that. We are valuable because we are made in God's image and likeness. We are image bearers. And that is something that we can acknowledge in such simple forms. I, I share this anecdote often, that, uh, and, and I share it often with the most ardent of abortion advocates that I speak with. People who hate my guts. People who at times wish that I would get run over by a truck. And I ask them, if I'm walking away from here, and I'm about to get run over by a truck, what do you do when you realize that? Without helping yourself, without, without anything, you are going to yell out, stop, stop to me, stop to the truck, stop to something. You are going to recognize immediately that something needs to be done. When you see somebody who's being victimized, your immediate reaction is to help. And it's only once we stop and once we start thinking, once our broken and fallen hearts and minds enter into the equation, that we pull back. Maybe that person deserved it. Maybe this is too much of a risk for me. Maybe, maybe, maybe. We know that we have value. We know that others have value outside of what they could ever do for us because in that moment of crisis, our response, our emotional, our spiritual reflex, as it were, is to help. We know that we are made in God's image and likeness. We know that to extend the verse that um, Gregory shared before, we know that we are God's workmanship that we are the pinnacle of his creation. How incredible is that as we reflect on Psalm 8 or Psalm 144, whatever it may be, that we are God's pinnacle of creation, that we can look at the Rocky Mountains and say, those are incredible, and yet you made us higher than those mountains. 
that we can look across the beautiful flowing wheat fields with awe and wonder and realize that humans were created in a greater and more profound way than that. And the greatest and culminating aspect is that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, for our sake. That is the value that we have the opportunity as Christians to show people, to invite them to appreciate and understand. So often, I'm joined by my colleague Virginia out here, and she'll be at the table at the back as well. So often, what we're dealing with when we're building the case for life is not simply and solely building the case for preborn life, but rather building the case for all life. So often, the reason why those in our families, those in our friend groups, those in our communities, they don't value preborn life is because they do not understand their own value. They see their own value rooted in how they understand themselves. I am valuable because I help people around me. I am valuable because I'm the funny guy. I'm valuable because of what I do, and when I don't do it, my value diminishes. Tragically, so often we are motivated not only by our workplace, that, that somehow we view, the, view God at times, but even more often when people don't have a relationship with God, when they haven't been saved, when they don't know Him, this is a matter of, I am valued based on what I contribute at work, contribute to my family, contribute in other ways. And so if people see their own value through the lens of what I contribute, what I have to offer, and that I am valuable based on that, if I earn my own salvation in the eyes of the world, if I earn my own um, dignity, if I am in charge of this, then how can somebody who's doing nothing have value? If my value decreases when I stop serving, when I stop helping, how often, tragically, do we even as Christians have this in the back of our minds? You know what, I have to be there. I have to be there on Sunday to be an usher, to be a children's liturgy person, to be whatever. I have to be there because if I'm not, if I'm not serving in this way, then my value diminishes. That's spoken in my heart. This active change that Christ is trying to draw in me, the same as Gregory, the same as everyone else, this active change is necessary for, for us to understand the case for life for our own lives, that we are human, we are God's workmanship, and that he has died for us and that he is our salvation. And when we can bring that into a conversation with somebody, when we can use the logic that they're already familiar with, they know the terms of human rights. They appreciate this. They're going to become pro-life through that line of argumentation because that eliminates that last option. And we are left with only one remaining option. When we demonstrate to them using their own terminology and then deepening with our Christian understanding of the profound and beautiful value of human life, then that erases that final option and draws them to the pro-life worldview. This works. This works not only to create pro-lifers. We, we have conversations day in and day out as to um, drawing people to the pro-life worldview. And we witness a tremendous number of people becoming pro-life. I'm going to share in a moment some of the anecdotal testimonies of people becoming fully pro-life because of the conversations that they're having. But not only do they become pro-life, we open the door for a greater conversation. So often we consider the ministry that we do. We are the paramedics of the culture war. We are the paramedics that may not be able to correct somebody's entire lifestyle. We are the people who are getting um, in, into the mud. We are going out and we are reaching people who are being led away to slaughter. Literally, 
bringing their children to abortion facilities because they do not know the profound value of their child's life, because they don't even know that there's a child there in the first place. We are the paramedics, and yet we open the door for greater spiritual health, for a journey towards relationship with Christ. I'm going to share a few um, stories, beautiful, wonderful stories that God has allowed um, us to be humbly a part of in witnessing people change their mind on abortion using this case for life. While doing Choice Chain, I was holding an image of an 11-week-old aborted child. Two boys walked up to me and they said, what are you doing? And I said, this is what an abortion looks like. I then asked them if they believed in human rights, and they said, of course we do. And after talking about human rights for a bit, they both agreed that an abortion is a human rights violation because it kills a child. And they walked away completely pro-life. I was doing choice chain at the high school in Calgary, and in the span of a lunch hour, I literally spoke to 35 students who had never thought about the issue of abortion before. And by the end of my conversations with them, every single one of them realized that abortion was a human rights violation. While doing choice chain in downtown Windsor, I spoke to a woman named Christine, who shared with me that she thought abortion was wrong in all cases except for sexual assault. And she then mentioned how she just left the courthouse, where she was dealing with her own sexual assault case and she wasn't sure if she was pregnant or not. So Christine wanted to know, what did I think about that? I told Christine how valuable her life is and how we as a society need to do more to care for women like her who have been through such a traumatizing experience. I then showed her how valuable the life of the pre-born child was as well and that they are deserving of their human rights. Christine smiled at me and said, wow, you really struck a chord in me. We shook hands and she went on her way. Not knowing that Hannah had already spoke to her, I asked her again what she thought about abortion. While motioning across the street, she said, Hannah changed my mind, and she went on her way. While doing activism, I asked a woman walking by what she thought about abortion. She then pointed to a cute little boy in her stroller. She told me that she was going to get an abortion, but chose not to after seeing our signs and talking with us. Little Noah is alive today because his mother saw what abortion really does to preborn children. I was recently doing activism in downtown Hamilton when a young woman approached me and said, I saw you guys here last week and I was going to get an abortion, but after seeing the pictures of aborted children, I changed my mind. I'm keeping my child. God is so good at working in our lives and allowing us to be part of his ministry of changing hearts and minds on the issue of abortion. Sharing this case for life, a very accessible case for life that begins with terminology and words that are going to resonate with them regardless of their background and opens the door for a deeper conversation about the true value of human life. Inviting them into an understanding that they've often thought about before but have never thought deeply enough. This appreciation for human rights to deepen that into a true and wonderful understanding of their own value and the value of the people around them is incredible. And, and we're blessed to witness that in amazing degree. Based on over 5,000 conversations that our ministry has been a part of over the last two years alone, and considering only those who support abortion in one way or another, we are blessed to interact with a ton of Christians, a ton of pro-lifers who already oppose abortion. But of those who support abortion in one way or another, this case for life presented in this way allows 27% of them to become fully pro-life by the end of those conversations. 
was an additional 25% more, becoming significantly more pro-life. As Christians, we have an opportunity and we have an obligation to defend the widow and the orphan. And who in our society is more orphaned than the preborn child whose mother and father deny their very existence? Who is led to the slaughter more than the child that can do nothing to defend themselves? I think often of an interview conducted by um, BBC in the late 90s, speaking to a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. I don't know how many people are familiar with the horrors of the Rwandan genocide in the mid-90s. For whatever reason, in this live interview, this BBC interviewer asked her the question, do you believe the genocide in Rwanda was the greatest injustice in human history? I don't know what, ex what answer she was expecting. I don't know if she was expecting a debate between the genocide in Rwanda and the Holocaust or communist Russia or something like that. This Rwandan genocide survivor responded simply with no. Abortion is the greatest injustice in human history. Dumbfounded, the BBC reporter had no idea how to respond. And so she continued. She said, while fighting for my life, I could run, I could hide, and I can fight back. I might have died trying, but at least I could try. A preborn child can do none of that. If we accept and acknowledge the case for life, which I have tried to present faithfully today, a case for life that is rooted not only in secular science, but also deepened by our understanding of Scripture, then we have not only the tools, but also the obligation to go forth and change the hearts and minds of the people around us. And this is so vital. We have teams across the country. We have staff, we have 35 staff working across the country. We, we take on 60 or 70 interns every year. We have volunteers across the country as well. Virginia is our, our Western Church Outreach Coordinator working with churches like this to equip and mobilize people, not only with the tools that they need to have compassionate and compelling conversations themselves, but also establishing the prayer ministries necessary to storm heaven with our prayers to fuel the ministries of those who are going out on those street corners and on those doorsteps. I want to invite you to prayerfully consider being a part of that, being a part of our team growing forward so that we can continue not only changing hearts and minds on abortion through this case for life, but opening the door for greater conversion, opening the door for deepening of our understanding and how we respond to the case for life. What demands that put on my life, on your life, and the lives of those around you? And so I thank you. For, for considering this and, and thinking on this case for life now. I hope that this has resonated in your hearts. Maybe, maybe you have had questions. Maybe you have wondered at times whether or not abortion would be appropriate in this case or in that case. Whether or not you have considered whether or not the church takes abortion too seriously. And maybe we should focus on other issues or other considerations in your mind. I hope this helps give um, foundation and root to why so many Christians are active in the pro-life movement and why we need so many more. Because who better than Christians who have the deepest and most full knowledge of human value, who better to share that with the people around? As difficult as that might be, it is so necessary. I, as I mentioned, um, my, my initial career ambitions before Christ led me in this direction were to um, seclude myself in a dark laboratory and never talk to anybody. And here I am 10 years later having talked to 10,000 people about one of the most divisive and complicated subjects out there. Thousands of whom who have chosen abortion themselves. 
and how good God is in allowing this light to shine through to change the hearts and minds of people. You might feel like you are not the right person to have these conversations. Maybe you're too fiery. Maybe you're too quiet. We want to help you have those conversations in defense of preborn children and their families and opening that door for a greater conversion because it's beautiful how often this foot in this door opens for such a greater, such a deeper and more important and more um, lively conversation about our faith and about our true value as human beings as precious children of God. Thank you very, very much. Both myself and Virginia will be... Um, both at the back of the church after the service as well as in the, the coffee hour as well. I'd love to answer any questions that you might have, any concerns, any other considerations about how to navigate these conversations and how we can effectively build the case for life. So thank you very much. Prayers for all of, um, all of your conversations, all of your interactions. You never know when you might be in these situations. And so we, we want to set up these prayer teams so that each and every person has the prayer support to be able to change hearts, to change minds, to draw people to a full and complete appreciation for the value of human life. Thank you very much.